I would say, you know, if you ask, like, what is science? The task of science is explanation. Now, Zach and I in our paper talk about this thing called consilience, where we might refine our explanations on the basis of unexpected predictions that get made. But fundamentally, we're not in the prediction business. You know, it's like Darwin, he doesn't predict that we're going to have birds. He explains how we have birds. That's what makes him a scientist as opposed to, I don't know, like an engineer or something. What makes a satisfying explanation? Understanding and prediction are two different goals at odds with one another. Think fundamental physics versus artificial neural networks. And even what defines a simple explanation varies from one person to another. Held in a kind of ecosystemic balance, these diverse approaches to seeking knowledge keep each other honest. The use of one kind to the exclusion of all others leads to disastrous results. And in the 21st century, the difference between good and bad explanations determines how society adapts as rapid change transforms the world most people took for granted and sends humankind into the epistemic wilderness to find new stories that will help us navigate a brave new world. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week, we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. My apologies for missing a week in our regular scheduling. We had kind of a supply chain failure. <laughs> Very appropriate for 2021. This week, we dive deep with SFI external professor Simon DeDeo at Carnegie Mellon University to explore his research into intelligence and the search for understanding, bringing computational techniques to bear on the history of science, information processing at the scale of society, and how digital technologies and the coronavirus pandemic challenge humankind to think more carefully about thinking here on the edge of chaos. If you value our research and communication efforts, please subscribe to Complexity Podcasts wherever you listen, rate and review us at Apple Podcasts, and or consider making a donation at santafe.edu slash engage. And be sure to visit the show notes for links to all the papers we mentioned, as well as to our latest volume from SFI Press, The Complex Alternative, which gathers perspectives from over 60 scholars in our community on COVID and complex systems, including an essay by Simon we discuss in this episode. Thank you for listening. Simon DeDeo, thank you so much for being on Complexity Podcast. It's a long time coming. It's uh, very good to be here, Michael. So with you, as with everyone, I'd like to ground this in a bit of personal biography because you are a human being. You're not just an intellectual mm -hmm. and a scholar. Mm -hmm. uh, so, <laughs> you know, the civilization is suffering from a, I would consider a crisis in social epistemology. Mm -hmm. It's useful for people to understand who the experts are, right? right? Let's demystify Simon DeDeo a little bit and trace the uh, trajectory whereby you are here sitting in this seat today. Sure. I always you know, try to figure out why am I thinking about this particular thing I'm thinking about right now? Like, how did I end up there? And oftentimes you realize that your current obsession, whatever you're currently obsessed by, 
actually has been sitting in your head for you know 20 years and you know i'm 42 right so that would be you know when i was in university uh, i'll tell you a little bit and this is a way into both you know what i'm sort of obsessing about but also sort of biographical i'm really interested in explanations and obviously i'm interested in explaining things that's what scientists do but i'm also interested in just the human practice of explanations um you know what do we do when we explain things and uh, just last week, actually, my old PhD advisor, uh, David Spurgle. So David was at Princeton when I was an astrophysicist years and years ago when I was in physics. And David turned 60 and we had this enormous party for him. And by party, it means we all just gave lectures about our own work. And David's very gracious because he let us do that. But it was really fun to be back with the old physics gang where I came from. See some very old friends, people I hadn't seen for a long time because, of course, eventually I ended up outside of physics in Santa Fe Institute where, you know, physicists go to change and you know among other things you know in addition to being like oh man the old days like back when we didn't know the shape of the universe and then we know now we know the universe has a certain shape and this is what it is um but i also realized like i came out of this extraordinarily functional world physics certainly astrophysics in the early 2000s and still today it's just like it's a paradigmatic example of a successful science. It's a science that's achieved remarkable results. It's a science that has, you know, come to common ground on, I mean, dumb things like the statistical analysis, like we don't have p hacking in astrophysics. I mean, we have like, there was a joke, right? Somebody was doing it for a while, like, but we're statistically healthy. We like each other. Like, no one's fighting. It's not like linguistics where, you know, all of Chomsky's students hate each other. You know, it's like people are just flourishing intellectually. The field is flourishing and it has been flourishing for decades and decades. So, you know, today I think about people explaining things and I think about people explaining things, you know, where it's going wrong, right? But why am I so interested in explanation? It's because I think I saw it going right for so long. Uh, I saw it in these contexts uh, where we had, I won't say we had solved the problem of explanation, but we had established a set of values, a set of social practices, and then also, you know, our, you know, individual cognition, the way we looked at the world, all of these things were working together in astrophysics, you know, so that we could do insanely cool things like figure out whatever the universe is 12.7 billion years old by combining together the work of, you know, dozens of groups internationally. I, so anyway, I'm going on a bit, Michael, but I think this is one of, one of the things that's sort of fun for me is exactly like trying to figure out where, where I came from. And since you asked, it's almost like I grew up with a bunch of athletes and now I study people with broken bones. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps a bit more abstract than I was gaming for. But so what got you from astrophysics to the work that you do now? Okay, practically, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Practically, non-philosophically, astrophysics is a great success. But at the same time, I became curious about systems that were, let's say, harder to get agreement on, harder to study. One reason is, I mean, the old joke, right, in astrophysics was you know, we have 10,000 people in four problems. And, um, you know, I didn't like those odds. And I like, you sort of know, like, okay, I know who's going to solve these problems. That probably won't be me. But I became really, really interested in, you know, what we obviously today we call complex systems. And I became interested in particular the ways in which we could study individuals. So early on, I worked in animal cognition. I work in human cognition. How we could study the ways in which an individual thinker can scale up. 
and produce, you know, these kind of weird, like social liquids, right? Social crystals. So yeah, so I was at the time, I was a postdoc at the University of Chicago. I was uh, working in, you know, very theoretical questions in astrophysics. And uh, I was in, yeah, I'll get really cramped in my phone. I was in the basement of the seminary co-op in the University of Chicago, which is in Hyde Park. And the seminary co-op, it's now moved to a nicer building. But at that point in time, it was like underground. It was this labyrinth. And, you know, I was looking for good problems. And I was just wandering the stacks looking for good problems. I walked over to the philosophy section, and I couldn't make any sense of what was going on. I knew there was really good problems in philosophy, but I couldn't make sense of what they were doing or how they were going to solve the mind-body problem. And then I wandered into the biology section, and I actually came across a book called The Origins of Order by Stuart Kaufman, one of the great, you know, early SFI people. And, you know, I started reading it, you know, in the bookstore, I just sort of sat on the floor and, you know, read, I just inhaled it. And I mean, I did eventually buy the book and bring it home with me. But, you know, I had never really thought about biology seriously before. In fact, I, I'm in high school, I had this like big fight with my biology teacher. And so that was that, right? I, you know, I quit AP Bio because I just, you know, I had such contempt for it. But Stu's approach, the way he was talking about these problems, the way he was able to translate a question in biology into a question that had a flair for the mathematical, a flair for the universal, that was really enchanting. Because look, in the end, yes, like I'm really bored by the Krebs cycle. I could never remember all this stuff we had to study. But at the same time, yeah, like human beings were amazing. Like, you know, biologically as creatures, no engineer could build us. No engineer could assemble an ecosystem. There's an old line, I think it's Regina Spector, right? You know, I'm perfect. My eyelashes catch my sweat, right? Like, it's amazing. Like, the extent to which all these features of the human body combine together to produce a functional creature. So, you know, Stu's after this problem. And I sat down, I very quickly realized that Stu had teamed up with some very interesting physicists, a guy called, interestingly enough, Derrida, but not that Derrida, different Derrida, that, you know, he was engaged with problems in what on the physics side, we would call a spin glass problem, which of course, just recently won the Nobel Prize for easy. And so yeah, so I would this, this started to obsess me. And then, you know, the other joke I tell, and it's completely true, is I got really interested in this. And so I emailed like the 10 most interesting scientists that I thought could work at this level. And, you know, half of them were at the Santa Fe Institute, the other half were external faculty. And that was not by design. That was literally just, you know, kind of looking at the kinds of work that spun out from my interest there. And yeah, and I mean, I wrote them all emails, but half of them wrote back. It was really sweet. So now I always, I mean, you know, I hate to say this, but people write me emails, of course, now, like I'm in this position uh, that some of these people I wrote to are in. And, you know, I always try and write back, if only to say, you know, hey, I don't have any funding right now. But, uh, but, you know, don't quit, keep going. Because I did, I mean, you know, of course, it's, it's always tricky. I did end up coming to the Institute. Jessica Flack wrote back, who does a lot of things, biological computation, more generally, also worked, you know, sort of these, at the interface of these theoretical and empirical questions. So I, yeah, I came to the Institute. And then, you know, I guess the final joke, and again, it's totally true, like I sort of made it so awkward, they couldn't ask me to leave. That's not entirely true. But some people come and you see this at the summer school, the kinds of approaches, the, the dynamic nature of collaborations, the way in which we center around, you know, questions, not domains, problems, not traditions, that kind of stuff. For some people, it just, it's, that's just what you want to do. So that's in the end, Michael, how I ended up talking to you now. Excellent. So in your discussion of astrophysics as a successful science, and then your drift away from that, into the you know the study of failure scenarios 
I'd also say, Mecca, I, maybe, I forget to use a metaphor here. It's not broken bones. It's an autoimmune disease, right? It's a, it's a case where the virtue of the body turns into a trauma, turns into a vice. Our immune system, again, like one of these, you know, mega things, like it turns out we have this autonomous, you know, molecular drone system constantly attacking on our behalf. Uh, and that's great until it's not great. And, you know, things go drastically, dramatically and chronically wrong. So you might say, like, I study the autoimmune diseases of epistemology now, how the same things that make us such powerful scientists can also make us such powerful, let's say, conspiracy theorists is the thing, one of the things we're interested in right now. But I, I interrupted you, so please, please, go <laughs> on, go on. Well, this is great because you just handed it to me on a platter because I wanted to talk with you about a paper that you co-authored with uh, Zachary Wachowicz from probability to consilience, how explanatory values implement Bayesian reasoning. And now I imagine probably half of our audience knows what Bayesian probability mm -hmm. even is and the mm -hmm. other half does mm -hmm. not. So for our purposes, you know, feel free to dip into that as much as you like. But mm -hmm. what we're really after is you talk about being interested in the autoimmune disease. Mm -hmm. And I think this paper does a very good job of unpacking how it is that people try to make sense of things mm -hmm. and what sort of constitutes a healthy immune system, meaning, right. you know, like a balance of different uh, heuristics for mm -hmm. understanding. So lead us into this piece a little bit, and then we'll start tethering out from it into other stuff. No, this, I mean, it's a wonderful place to begin because that paper, it's a paper in theory. It's a paper on the theory of both knowledge building and how knowledge building actually happens. One way into this is Bayesian reasoning. So what is Bayesian reasoning? It's associated with the Reverend Bayes, publishes one paper posthumously, you know, and he didn't even submit it. Somebody else was like, hey, I got these notes. This is the Reverend Bayes. Submitted to the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society in the 1700s. And you read it today and you're like, holy shit, like this guy saw 300 years into the future. It's insane how much he gets right. And you're reading, I mean, it's like you keep going. It's actually the only other paper that's like this that I've ever read is Claude Shannon's Creation of Information Theory, which again happens in one paper. The Reverend Bayes' paper, it's the same thing. It's just slightly old style language, but you're reading it and you're like, I'm sure this is the end of the paper. And it's like, no, and yet there's even more that he understands. And then what's funny, of course, is that we didn't actually realize how much was in there until the 20th century. So at the time, I mean, people understood it. People, well, who knows if they understood it, but you know, it was published in the best journal in the country, if not all of Europe. But unlike, let's say, the theory of evolution, unlike the discovery of electromagnetism, unlike, you know, Ben Franklin flying his kite, we don't have monuments to Bayes, in part because I think we didn't realize how important the question was until we started trying to form reliable knowledge. And by reliable knowledge, I mean mathematically reliable knowledge. And that became a premium when our measurement devices got good enough that actually we were really getting quantitative evidence is not just qualitative evidence. And then, of course, we also had the ability to gather a great deal of information through machines. And finally, of course, maybe we had the processing power to do it because Bayes was like, oh, look, here's how you would infer things optimally. Good luck with that, right? Got to go. And we really didn't have, you know, the tools to do this on a mega scale. It didn't really hit science until the 20th century. 
not to, you know, tie everything together, but this was, of course, one of the things that happened in astronomy was Bayesian reasoning hit astronomy. And that's when we finally entered what we call today the precision era, where I can literally tell you the universe is 12.7 billion years old, plus or minus, you know, a billion or whatever it is. So that's a long way around to saying Bayesian reasoning is a story about how to form beliefs optimally. Uh, you can prove that you will achieve the correct unbiased belief faster than any other method. So that's great. Like now we can just go play music, right? We're done. We've solved knowledge formation. We have a recipe, an algorithm, literally, for forming the best possible beliefs. And in fact, like it turns out there are like cults of the Reverend Bayes at this point where people actually believe this problem has been solved. Um, of course, it hasn't. But the reason it hasn't been solved is very interesting. And the reason comes back to this question of what are called priors, at least that's what we've come to call them. So it turns out, actually, what Bayesian reasoning enables you to do is to increase your knowledge from some previous state, right? It enables you to take your state of knowledge at point A and increase it by gathering information to take you to point B. And so it's actually the, you, know, you might think of it as the optimal way to go from A to B. It doesn't, however, tell you how you got to A. It doesn't tell you where you begin. It doesn't tell you when you walk in to a laboratory, when you come into a new field, you know, you come into the Santa Fe Institute and you've never seen an animal before, at least in a scientific study. It doesn't tell you how you ought to, for example, distinguish between explanations before the evidence comes in. It doesn't tell you the ways in which you might attend more or less to some chunk of evidence over another. Uh, so there's a lot of these missing pieces in there that, you know, Zach and I are trying to tease apart. And so I would say the innovation there is in part, obviously, drawing our attention as psychologists, as cognitive scientists to the problem of explanation itself. So, you know, it's very meta, we're explaining explanation. And the other thing is to show, you know, even though Bayesian reasoning is supposedly this unique and optimal thing to do, you can actually kind of tease apart all the pieces, isolate them, and consider them, you know, as a sort of set of values that come together in the mind of a scientist, let's say, or, you know, in the mind of somebody off duty trying to make sense of the world. So I think that's where Zachary and I begin. And then, you know, the question is, okay, what are these values? Having teased apart this algorithm, you might say to like these little sub-modules, okay, what are these sub-modules of the reasoning process? What do they look like? Can we name them? Do they tie into things that we've seen in, let's say, the scientific record itself, meaning how scientists have explained things? Can we see these units tying into things in the philosophy of science, things that philosophers have talked about as ways to make decisions? Can we see them tying into cultural practices of explanation that go beyond science. So can we see them tie into, let's say, how we tell stories, how journalists explain things, how historians explain things, how we explain things to ourselves in our diaries, right? So on and on, right? That was kind of our goal there was to sort of say, you know, look, from the outside, it looks like you have this unitary optimal algorithm for sense making. And yet actually, you know what, when you open the hood and look inside, it's a collection, like this little jewel box of pieces that actually look far more philosophical, far more value laden than we might expect. So in decomposing this, which you do formally, in exploring this, the two of you come across this important nuance, which is that what you and I consider a satisfying explanation is not necessarily mm -hmm. the same thing. And right. that furthermore, what I might consider the simplest explanation 
isn't the same mm -hmm. thing. Working in social media, you see a lot of people who toss around Occam's razor. They're like trying to mm -hmm. cut each other with it. You know, they're saying, <clears throat> this is what you're shooting for. Right. And you're saying, well, not always. And I'd like to hear you unpack a little bit about, I'm sure anybody listening to this will immediately recognize there are cases in which they adopt one or the other of these sort of modes of what satisfies mm -hmm. them when they're trying to come up with a story about what happened. Because I think we're already kind of like waist deep in this. I just want to point back to where we waited in and note that we waited past the issue that understanding something is not the same as predicting something. Yeah. 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 So yeah, if you can so, talk I mean, about you know, this. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, here's an example. Let me just give you an example of these kinds of heuristic values in action. So imagine you meet a student, right? You're on a college campus, you meet a student and you're, you're talking to her and you're like, what are your classes this year? And she says, oh, you know, I have a class in advanced French and I have a class in neuroscience. So let's say we're trying to make sense of that. We're like, okay, interesting, right? You know, and so you say, well, how do I make sense of this woman's intellectual life, right? She's a student, she's beginning her career as a thinker. How do I make sense of what's what's going on for her this semester? And so, you know, here's one explanation, right? She's pre-med and she has an interest in French literature, right? So that's one way to make sense of what's going on here. Another explanation is, oh, she's a linguistics major, right? Linguistics, you know, it's like she's going to study French, but of course, linguistics is one of these kind of cog sci like programs where you will also potentially, you know, study how the brain works as well, how the brain processes language as well as how language works in the real world. So, you know, the first explanation, um, you know, may fit the data, right? It may help you make sense of this person, but there's also perhaps something less satisfying about it because it says, okay, she's got two properties and one property is caused by this thing and the other property is caused by this other thing and there's no connection between them, right? She's pre-med and actually, look, she could have just as well liked history, but she liked French. The second explanation that this is a student of linguistics, it makes these two phenomena, kind of unifies them behind the scenes. And it says, okay, both of these experiences that she's having actually have some common root together. So which one you prefer is in part based upon your own taste, your own taste, let's say for Occam's razor. So you and I could be standing and be like, Michael, Occam's razor, like the simplest thing, right? Don't multiply entities endlessly. Instead of giving her two preferences, one for being a doctor and the other for French, give her one preference, linguistics, Occam's razor, like eat it, right? You might say, flip side, you know, Simon, that's fine, but this is a big college campus and linguistics is, as they call it, a discovery major, not many linguistics majors here. So yeah, look, you know, linguistics would be a simple, elegant account of what's going on, but it's very unlikely that she's a linguistics major, just because there just aren't many at this school. There's like five and it's a campus of 50,000. So you can see already how some of these debates, you know, I mean, this is like the very low stakes version of things, of course, that happen on social media all the time, right? We're always presented with a world that doesn't make sense, at least on the face of it. And then we're always presented with this challenge of explaining and of making sense of what's going on around us. So I think that's a piece of it. You know, the other thing, Michael, and you, since you bring this up, right, predictions, that explanation, notice that in this debate, right, you know, we're having about why this student is taking the classes she's taking. There's no prediction involved here. We already know the answer. We know she's taking a French class and we know she's doing neuroscience. We haven't predicted anything. And yet there's still something really interesting that we want to do here. I would say, you know, if you ask, like, what is science? The task of science is explanation. Now, 
Zach and I in our paper talk about this thing called consilience, where we might refine our explanations on the basis of unexpected predictions that get made. But fundamentally, we're not in the prediction business. We're in the explanation. You know, it's like Darwin, he doesn't predict that we're going to have birds. He explains how we have birds. That's what makes him a scientist as opposed to, I don't know, like a engineer or something. I remember years ago, it occurred to me that in the kind of cosmological debates that Sean Carroll likes to get involved in, is there or is there not a quantum multiverse? Right. You know, maybe the most concise version would be that there is because the shortest line of code that you can write is make everything. It's not this and not that. It's just this. <laughs> right. right. You know, right. it's just, yeah. it is. Uh, whereas, yeah. it, you know, most people would assume, oh, it's parsimonious that there is only one universe. Right. Like that's, that's the handle that I've had on this. And so you end up with people who believe that they are chasing the same kind of virtue and arriving at completely different places with it. Now, you take this in the paper into a kind of apologetics for conspiracy theory, mm -hmm. which I find very meaningful. <laughs> <laughs> I, find right. it very, I, right. I find it very helpful, actually, because, you know, one of the broader themes that I tend to strum mm -hmm. in SFI mm -hmm. research is this issue around bounded rationality mm -hmm. and around the way that Stan Sperber's work mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the issue of, you know, rationality being a social thing. So we're actually intended to disagree. You mentioned Jessica Flack, she mm -hmm. and David Krakauer mm -hmm. and, and others have done a lot of work on the value of conflicts of interest and the stalemates mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. the entire society coming to a best solution. Right. And so it's actually good for us to disagree as long as mm -hmm. there is a common goal. And so, yeah, I'm not as terrified of polarization mm -hmm. in some sense. Like it's thrown at us by mm -hmm. news media as though it's a wholly negative phenomenon. But mm -hmm. in fact, were we all aligned in mind, we would be to draw on Martin mm -hmm. Sheffer's work, quote unquote, autocorrelated, right? Which is the tell that he mm -hmm. indicates that a system is about to collapse. Like if everyone is thinking the same way, then you're ripe for some mind virus to come and destroy the entire place. So there's some kind of evolutionary utility at the scale of society itself for us to not see things in the same way. Therefore, I find your work helpful in trying to make space for that kind of thing. And I really appreciated the way that you identify the similarities and the differences, the important differences between what a conspiracy theorist is doing and what a physicist is doing. And I'd like to use that as a launch point to some of your other work. Yeah, no, this is great. I mean, there's one of the things you mentioned to me, I want to sort of, you know, see you and, you know, raise the stakes even further, which is, um, you know, you look at some of our most successful institutions, let's call them our most successful meta institutions. So, you know, in the Anglo-American tradition, what do we have? We have the common law. The common law courtroom is you know, the prosecution and the defense go to war, right? They're not trying to find common ground. They are battling to the death, right? You are the world's worst defense lawyer if the prosecution says something and you're like, you know, really have a point there about my client. Actually, he did it, right? That's terrible, right? So the prosecution and defense don't have this common ground of getting to the truth, right? They are fundamentally malaligned. And yet at the same time, we see this as producing very often good outcomes, you know, people say, oh, the criminal justice system is falling apart. It is, but I'll tell you why it's falling apart. It's falling apart because of plea bargains. We very rarely actually get 
to switch on this, I would say, often beautiful mechanism of the actual courtroom itself. And we know that when we've done that in the past, when we've had jury trials, when they've played a bigger role in our society, that's also been a case where we've also had social change. So, I mean, one of the great examples of this is jury nullification, right? So, yeah, the prosecution, the defense, the jury can nullify. I mean, this is like the world's worst system, except for, I mean, it's the old joke, except for all the others, right? Journalism is another great example, right? I remember years ago when I first met a science journalist, right? And she did an article on some of the stuff we had worked on. And I said to her, I was like, oh, this is great. You know, when you write the article, just send it back to me and I'll just double check things for you. And she's like, no, what are you nuts? That's not how journalism works. I write the article. You don't approve the article. It's not like the Washington Post runs everything by the president to make sure that he's okay with it before they publish, right? So it's like, this is an adversarial relationship in a funny way. Obviously, sources and kind of complicated things, but... It was such a natural thing for me to say. Now, to be clear, some science journalists, depending on the kind of article, will come back to you. But certainly, you go to Columbia Journalism School, right? And it's the old joke, right? If your mother says she loves you, check it out. There's this fundamental conflict of interest built in. That's good, right? Well, you know, final example is markets. Markets are a great example. I don't want my grocer to prosper. In fact, I want to screw him as hard as I can for the best possible batch of eggs. I mean, not quite, right? But that's the goal, right? My goal is to get the best price for the best food. His goal, I mean, more complicated, right? I haven't, I haven't run a grocery store. But again, it isn't like we're coming together and being like, ah, you know, Frank, your grocery's so great. And you know, I understand your kids in college. So look, here's an extra $5 for the eggs, right? It's not how it works. And in fact, if when we start doing that, things actually start to go wrong, right? Don't ever overpay your grocer because then it gets really awkward the next time you come back and you don't overpay. So there is this really great kind of paradoxical system where we don't even have the same goals. And yet these common goals are realized. Then you say, when does it go wrong? It goes wrong precisely when things correlate right? Plea bargains are a great example of this, right? The crime you're charged with now tells you guilty or not guilty, or rather, the crime you're charged with predicts your plea bargain, right? No law, right? If you're busted on drugs, it's just plead, right? Because if you don't, you go to jury, the penalty will be so much higher. I don't know if you can hear the sirens. I mean, I don't know if you can hear the sirens. It's very apropos, yes. Yeah, right. It's great. No, they're coming for me. But, um, you know, so, or, I mean, take the example. So an old friend of mine, Matt Stoller, uh, talks about monopolies all the time. Monopolies are a great example where all of a sudden there's no conflict, right? Somebody gains such a huge market share that there's no one to fight with anymore, right? And at that point, again, things start going deeply wrong. We get very bizarre phenomena like, I mean, the classic example at this point is Facebook. So, you know, sitting in there is, I think, and just to sort of tease apart, one of the things we're saying is like, yes, absolutely, conflict is this this basic phenomenon where we've created over the course of time. I'll give you one more example, Michael. It's like peer review, right? Peer review sucks. We all hate peer review. And the old joke is we hate referee number three because referee number three is the guy or the woman, the person who submits their review last. That's why they referee three, right? Referee one's the person who gets it in first. So referee three submits it last because they hate your paper so much they don't want to read it. And when they finally read it, they're angry, right? So that said, you can see this. And in fact, so we see this in some of the data. You know, when a field stops using peer review, 
right? And the scientific field stops using peer review or peer review somehow is going wrong. The field itself starts to fall apart. And in fact, here's a, you know, one example is we actually see that people get less creative when there's not peer review, which is really interesting. And so why might that be, right? One reason people get less creative when there's no peer review is that now the only judgment that you can make about the validity of the article is whether it smells right, right? Whether it sounds good. Whereas if there's a journal with strong peer review, there could be an article there that's totally counterintuitive. And I'm like, well, it's in cognition. That's a great journal. There may be something more to this, right? So, you know, people hate peer review. I love it. I mean, I hate it, but I also love it. I hate it the same way a prosecutor hates the jury system, right? Of course, in one sense, you hate it because you're trying to win. But in another sense, you love it because that's, in the end, what establishes the legitimacy and the functionality of, in one case, scientific exploration, in the other case, community justice. So all these pieces are fitting together. Then you say, all right, okay, well, tell me about conspiracy theories, because this seems to be a situation in which things are going deeply, deeply wrong. And, you know, while we might say, okay, somebody's like, oh, I'm a bit of a socialist, but okay, the price system's good in some places. Or someone might say, look, we have too many laws, but there are some laws we ought to have, and then we're going to have jury trials, because that's, that's a great idea. Conspiracy theories, it's, you know, the first glance seems to be just crush them, right? And so you get all these questions from people that say, can we detect a conspiracy theory online and then just have Facebook delete it, right? And you and I, I think we both would say there's something wrong about this, right? We don't have to subscribe to the lizard people theory to think that there's something wrong with eliminating epistemic competition from society. If that's the case, we've got this intuition, then we have to say, okay, well, first of all, what kinds of conflict work? Because there's always rules, right? There's always norms, right? In any kind of conflict, there's norms like you can't fix prices, you can't do insider trading, you can't, uh, you know, hide evidence. If you're the prosecution, you have to like show the defense everything you've got, you know, all the evidence you've got. I know that just because I watched Law and Order. There's kind of boundaries, there's kind of fences and guidelines for total war, right? The cage match, there's a cage. So what do we do when we see these conspiracy theories? I will tell you straight off, and you know, we've done some work on this, and we'll talk about this in more detail. One of the things I say is there's no dividing line here. And what I mean by that is it's not that there's no dividing line between science and pseudoscience or history and pseudo-history. What I mean is that the communities are very fuzzy. It's not like Scientology where you're either in or you're out. It's actually a very, it's a, what we would call a power law spectrum here, where there's no clear boundary between a member of one of these groups and a non-member, right? When we look at any of these groups where somehow mentally something's going wrong, it's not like there's this hardcore crew, there's like, a, you know, the kind of papal council, and then there's the satellites. We really see that there's engagement at all timescales, depending on the individual. Someone might be there once, someone might be there 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times. I think it's wrong to say that we have, you know, in the United States, 25 conspiracies. We don't have 25 conspiracy theories. We have, I don't know sort of asking, like, how many oceans do we have? Well, we can call it the Atlantic, but let me tell you, I can swim from the Atlantic to the Pacific, so I'm not sure what's happening in South America. Anyway, that's that's a long-winded, that's a long-winded account, Michael, that, you know, it begins, because you said this really interesting thing, you said this thing about conflict, and then, of course, you know, this leads back to this question where conspiracy theories seem like such a great example where there's one side that should win, and it's the good side, <laughs> right? And I think both of us want to complicate that idea a little bit. So let's draw this down one atmospheric layer. You brought up earlier this notion of consilience. 
Yeah. And this is one of those virtues that becomes a vice. This is the epistemological immune system doing what mm -hmm. it's supposed to do and then going mm -hmm. wrong. Right. And so I'd like to talk about that and then use that as a point of entry into, I think the first time I actually ever heard you speak, which was mm -hmm. a talk that you gave at SFI in 2019 about your analysis of the records of the Royal Society and yeah. the history of science itself and the history of the scientific mm -hmm. explanation, which goes through booms and busts. Mm -hmm. To get there though, I want to hear you explain how it is that physicists are specifically like conspiracy theorists. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, there's the dumb joke, right? Like everything is a conspiracy in physics, right? Like electricity and magnetism conspire to produce light, right? Over and over again, certainly in the physical sciences, but increasingly in biology, you know, the sort of the two sort of paradigms. What people are trying to do is show that many different phenomena, many different properties of the same organism, many different properties of whatever, a certain kind of solid, whatever it is, all can be derived from a far simpler model. If we go to that example of the student you meet on campus, you know, we're all trying to figure out what the linguistics major is, right? What the thing that, you know, co-explains or draws together distinct properties. Yeah, you know, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a second, I think, when we come to the historical analyses we've done, or we go back into the records of the origin of science. But let's talk briefly about what goes wrong in the case of the conspiracy theorists, because in one sense, look, the joke is electricity and magnetism conspire with each other to make light, but it's in quotation marks. So what's going wrong with the conspiracy theorists? Well, what we see on the surface is very similar to science, because the conspiracy theorists, just as much as the scientists, is making different distinct properties depend upon each other. And in fact, the more distinct the properties, the better. And that's true for both scientists and conspiracy theorists. So Orsted, the great Danish physicist, is the first one who says, wait a second, like this electricity stuff is like moving the compass around. Like this is crazy, right? So there's some, these two things seem to be so different and yet they somehow go together. The conspiracy theorist sort of does many of the same things, right? What Hillary Clinton is saying on TV, right, is, you know, connected to the pizza restaurant in DC and the fact that they're closed on Sundays. Like this all becomes part of some larger story about the world, right? And I'm referencing, of course, here the, the QAnon conspiracy theory, right, which famously, you know, tied you know, leading members of the Democratic Party to a pizza restaurant that was meant to be concealing child abuse. So the conspiracy theory does it, right? It's like, wow, like I go walk by the pizza restaurant. And the properties of that pizza restaurant actually have something to do with, you know, what I saw in the debates. So what's wrong here? And, you know, I think fundamentally what's going wrong for the conspiracy theorists, you know, a, a line that we can draw between these two types of people is the conspiracy theorist is lacking some kind of Occam's razor module. And so let me just, let me kind of tease this apart for you. I know we sort of mentioned this like Occam's razor fights, right? So let's take another conspiracy. This is one that we use as an example. It's partly it's sort of less common now. But in the 90s, we had something called the Oklahoma City bombing. So it was like the sort of you know, the largest scale domestic terror attack in the history of the country. And we know who did it. It's a guy called Timothy McVeigh, who was later executed. McVeigh builds this fertilizer bomb, uh, puts it in the back of a U-Haul, drives it to the federal building in Oklahoma City, sets a timer walks away and the explosion is so devastating it's horrifying the explosion is so devastating that many of the people were killed 
not by the falling building, but actually by the shards of glass that were sent flying everywhere. It was absolutely hard. So, but Mivey pulls us up and no one knows who's done this. Like there's no records. This machine has come in and like, no one knows, right? McVeigh is certainly not a suspect. So the next day after this incredibly sophisticated, let's say terrorist attack, McVeigh gets in his car and uh, he gets on the highway and he's driving on the highway. He's driving without license plates. His car, he's taking the license plates off his car and he's speeding. Right. So, you know, even I know this, Mike, right? Don't drive a car without license plates. And if you can drive a car without license plates, be a little discreet about it. Don't get on the interstate and speed, right? So he's speeding on the highway. And of course, he gets pulled over. And he's got like a loaded firearm in his car, right? That he shouldn't have. So they arrest him and they bring him to jail. And it's only when he's been in jail for like three days that they figure out he's like has something to do with this terrorist attack. So, how do you explain this? Well, I can tell you how to explain it. People are complicated, right? This is a man who has, on the one hand, the intellectual ability to build this bomb, set this off, not get caught. And yet he's also a moron and he's an idiot and he's going to do something that everybody knows, like, don't do this. Right? People are complicated. And metaphorically, like, sometimes you're interested in neuroscience and you're interested in French and they have nothing to do with each other. And that's fine. But there is a conspiracy theory that says Timothy McVeigh is a moron and he didn't do any of this. He's a patsy. He's been set up. And in fact, the bombing was pulled off by a sophisticated group of government agents, and it's a false flag. And now we're off to our conspiracy theory. And so in one sense, this is really simple, right? They actually have a much simpler thing. Instead of having to say, oh, this guy is a complicated, psychologically complicated person, they just say, no, he's an idiot. That's fine. He is an idiot. And this was just done by someone else. It was done by this secret group. So in one sense, this looks simpler. You don't have to have this sort of arbitrary account. But then, of course, you dig a little deeper and you say, well, God, a government agents pulled this off. Like, I mean, didn't any of the journalists smell this? Didn't they have some sense that they first showed up that like something was off? And it's like, no, 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 the journalists are in on it. New York Times in on it because it's part of the conspiracy. Okay, the cops showed up. You know, cops like maybe somebody thought, no, actually, there was this one cop who thought something and he said something. But then like the next day he was like mysteriously killed. Right. And so the story keeps ramifying. Right. And you're like, well, it's like the FBI is in charge of killing cops to, you know, cover up the government. The explanation, though, at the beginning, it seems much simpler. Right. In order to account for the apparent simplicity of the underlying story, these things keep ramifying. Things keep getting more and more complicated. And so in the end, you're left with a far more elaborate, far more um, arbitrary, far less simpler explanation. In fact, what the conspiracy theorist has done is very different. In electromagnetism, there's a single common cause, right, that explains the correlated phenomena. In the conspiracy theorist case, they're able to correlate the phenomena. But they're unable to preserve the simplicity that underlies that correlation. So, I mean, this is, you know, just to sort of tease apart, in one sense, the scientists and the conspiracy theorists get the same joy in the following sense. They love when two things are connected, right? They love when different properties of the same object fit together, right? You know, superconductivity, right? There's zero electrical resistance and it excludes magnetic fields. Ah, these two properties are connected. So both of these groups love this. The distinction, or at least one way to talk about this distinction, is the way in which one group is able to construct simple explanations that account for the correlation that they're claiming exists. It strikes me that in that sense, the many worlds interpretation of quantum physics is a kind of conspiracy theory. And it would make sense, right? Because I was, <laughs> I was just having a conversation the other day about 
information processing and like flow states and how the more engaged you are in intellectually demanding activity, the more you have to attend to the matter at hand, you're excelling in sports or your emergency response or whatever, mm-hmm. the less room there is for you to reflect on who you are, what your story is, what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And in those cases when subjectivity empties itself, people tend to report a sense of the world itself being suffused with meaning or with even like awareness. People get into these mystical states. And, you know, this is, (laughs) while that is not itself, you know, a subject of SFI research, there's like a conservation going on there. We're like in like sleep paralysis, different parts of the brain wake up at different times. And so you're stuck in bed and you think someone is sitting on you. You're coming up with this explanation for why it is that you can't move. And so the agent is elsewhere. And so, it, you know, mm-hmm. it just strikes me that there's a kind of like a diastolic and systolic, there's a pump here that we mm-hmm. see as systems move from one assignment of agency to another, like a figure mm-hmm. ground reversal. And this is where I want to explore what you spoke about in this piece, uh, the talk that you gave, Super Theories and Consilience from Alchemy to Electromagnetism back in 2019, mm-hmm. where you know, you're know you showing through your analysis that the confidence in there being a single unified theory of everything grows and then collapses and then grows and then collapses. And if you could provide a little exposition on that, and then I have some questions about kind of where you see us in that motion. You know, Michael, it's funny because you brought up actually, you know, sort of three things that I think people listening might think are distinct, but actually I think they're actually deeply, deeply connected. And so you brought up three things here. The first thing you brought up was this with flow. And um, the first thing I would say is Zachary, actually, my co-author Zachary, has a paper on flow and the question of boredom versus attention with a colleague, George Lowenstein, which people should definitely check out. The second thing you brought up, which gestalt, perception, figure ground. Uh, the final thing that you brought up, of course, is this work we've done in the you know uh, history of science. And these things, I would say, are deeply connected to each other because in each of these cases, there are places where we engage in a massive cognitive correlation between things, right? Gestalt is a great example where I can give you just little fragments of uh, an image or I can give you fragments of, you know, one of these optical illusions and your brain will conjure up a whole set of things to now, you know, we see them with like, where did the brain come up with these? We would say your brain comes up with a set of invisible objects that explain this unusual perception, that the brain is actually engaged in a sense-making drive that's so powerful, it reaches all the way down into the visual system. So one of the great examples is the triangle that comes out of nowhere, right? So you have three circles, you cut wedges out of them, and you look at it and you're like, I see the triangle. What triangle? There's no triangle. But what I see is not three circles with wedges cut out like a pizza pie or three pizza pies, what I see is three circles. And on top of it, someone's overlaid an invisible triangle. And why? Because that's a really uh, simple way, consilient way to explain what is otherwise a kind of random thing. Now, the joke, of course, is on us, because in this case, the psychologist has gone in, created the visual image that's so ridiculously complicated that our brain doesn't want that. It wants to see a conspiracy. It's the invisible triangle, right? It's like the little pyramid eye on the back of the dollar bill, except there's no eye. So, you know, the brain wants to do that. 
Uh, flow is, I think, another example. I mean, there's many, many things to say about flow. Uh, Csikszentmihalyi's early work on this. Zach has a wonderful account of flow as um, a way to manage attention. He's uh, you know, did work at CMU in this in psychology, but also in economics. So he's got some really great stuff to say there. What I would say, from my point of view, just you know, a simple account of flow. One of the things that it's doing is it's correlating the world around you. You're not in flow. I was at a meeting once, terrible meeting, where I'm talking to this person. And at the same time, they're having a conversation with me. They're also checking their email, like literally typing out emails. And my first question is, who is so crazy that they don't realize that I'm sitting here watching them have a conversation with half their brain? Um, but of course, really, what we know is this person can't be in flow. And the reason they can't be in flow is because they're managing two sets of really distinct phenomena simultaneously, right? Whereas our sense of flow is the ability for your mind to understand all of the properties of your task as in somehow coming from the same root, right? So this is, I don't want to speak for Zach here, but this would be a case where your attention is able to center around something simple that, of course, if you're lucky, ramifies, right? You can get into flow and some stupid things like some dumb video games. But the ideal forms of flow are, um, you know, like the surgeon, for example. Another, actually, this is kind of a fun one. People get into flow, Csikszentmihalyi said this years ago, people get into flow when they drive. And actually, when he studied people, he said one of the classic flow states is, you know, if you're unlucky enough not to have a hard job, Michael, is, is driving. And this is a case where your body merges with the car, for example. So at this point, you no longer have the distinct experience of your car as an object and you as an object. It's one of its own. So you asked me, okay, let's just bring these all together. You asked me, okay, well, how does this actually happen in this more rarefied social case? of science because the case of gestalt it's in your visual system it's really immediate in the case of flow it's maybe more elaborate you get flow when you play the cello but it's still an individual level experience and then you know what is this crazy flow state right that science has been in for 200 years you know so yeah we looked at the royal society we looked at the history of their records the royal society publishes a journal called philosophical transactions of the royal society uh, good branding uh, so Phil Trans, Philosophical Transactions, you've already heard this, right? Because it's where Bayes published his paper, where his paper was posthumously published. For better or for worse, for the first 200 years from like 1666, when the Royal Society kind of boots up um, until the late 1800s, this is basically the premier journal. And for most of that period, it's the only scientific journal. And it's certainly the only scientific journal that at least I know of for much of that period that has things like peer review. So in fact, Phil Trans invented peer review, or at least, you know, uh, made it such a key component of the scientific journal publication stage, and we can't imagine journals without peer review. So we have these records, I should say, by the way, what's the Royal Society, Royal Society, it's dedicated to science. Um, David Deutsch, who maybe we'll have a chance to talk about when we talk about many worlds, David Deutsch, say, you know, the motto is nullis in verba, right, take no one's word for it, scientific method. Royal Society, really, though, secretly, it's actually just a fan club. They're cosplaying this early science fiction book by Francis Bacon years before called New Atlantis, right? So there's actually this wonderful thing where it's a little bit like Neil Stevenson, right? We read the book, the story of an anthem is so compelling, you want to build a monastery. In this case, they read Francis Bacon and it became so compelling, they wanted to build New Atlantis. And so they built the Royal Society. Anyway, so we have their records, we have their journal. God bless the Royal Society. They digitized it and actually made it pretty, pretty good. We had a lot of help on that. So this is Will Thompson and, um, and Gabe Sam and Gabe's now at Caltech. Uh, Will is doing secret things, Los Alamos, I think. But what we're able to do there, we do a little bit of machine learning. And what we're able to do, and this is magic, I can't believe it always works, you're able to pull out word patterns. And these word patterns actually correlate very strongly with concepts. 
And this was a discovery that was made. A certain attack on text worked extraordinarily well. We discovered it in reply in 2005. Topic modeling, it's called. Turns out it just works so well, we just keep doing it. It's like the thermometer. We can't get a better thermometer, right? So we're able to extract these patterns. Each pattern kind of sticks onto a concept. What we're really interested in is not the concepts, because that's too rich, right? You know, what is electricity? I don't know, right? And actually figuring out what's in somebody's head when they imagine it too hard. What we can do is look at the ways in which those concepts get linked together. So that actually turns out to be a much more solvable problem. We can see the ways in which people start gluing things together. What happens over time, now, so look, first of all, you go back to the 1600s, um, people writing articles, and there's always, the, every article has more than one concept, right? There are always, you know, articles are always but a bunch of things. There are always, you know, it's like, I remember because they have the Lisbon earthquake in the 1700s, which is this, this kind of traumatic event uh, for European society, at least Western European society. It's this Lisbon earthquake, you know, what is life? Who am I? We die any moment. And so you, they have a special issue and it's like, earthquakes, what, right? And especially, you know, there's an article where it's like, you know, this reverend is like, let's talk about the philosophy of earthquakes. And another guy is like, earthquakes and like, do cows cause earthquakes? I mean, I'm joking a little bit here, but people are always combining concepts. They're always like, every paper's got more than one thing in it. But what we notice over time in the history of this journal is that people increasingly reliably link some concepts to other concepts. So it's not just that they're mixing stuff together, like, let's say, conspiracy theorists, like, do cows cause earthquakes? You know, do birds exist? What they're really doing is they're discovering reliable connections between concepts. And, you know, the one that will be most familiar to people, perhaps, is there's electricity, and lo and behold, there's magnetism. And all of a sudden, people, when they start writing papers about electricity, start reliably sticking it together with accounts of magnetism, right? The magnetism pattern, the electricity pattern start to co-associate. This actually magically, this happens um, well before the theory becomes explicit, right? So now we have electromagnetism, it's Faraday. and you know, But actually, we start to see that co-association pattern like 30 years beforehand. So this gets very exciting. We can start to see people tying ideas together. You know, we have some forward view on this. And that raises the question, of course, could we accelerate science if we can spot this? But you know, that linking together, that sort of simplifying urge that we see in the famous example of electricity and magnetism shows up actually in a lot of things that you and I would maybe consider kind of boring, but actually underlie a great deal of the modern world. So an example is scientific agriculture, right? Lo and behold, it turns out people realize that, you know, there's some connection between soils and the animals that eat the grass that grows out of the soil, right? So they start kind of reliably co-associating those two things. We see a chemistry topic associated with acidity start to connect to the medical topic of blood circulation because they're realizing that blood pH maybe is a thing, right? That when this goes wrong, something goes wrong. Um, so, you know, that's kind of this, I would say it's sort of a triumphant story. And I say triumphant because like science worked, right? By 1890, you look back at the last 200 years and you're like, go humans, like, fuck yeah, humans, we did it. We, we had such great success. And so one of the reasons we turned to the Royal Society is like, how did we do it? And one of the ways we do it, at least the claim we make, is that we did this by reliably co-associating patterns, which, and then you sort of have to make a sort of deeper cognitive connection between that surface level, we call operationalization of cognition, to then say, okay, was that actually what's going on? And the answer is yes, right? We think that's what's going on. But by linking together these concepts reliably, what we're tracking is the extent to which people co-explain, right? The electricity and magnetism one is a great example. Light is a conspiracy between these two objects. 
Um, we see triplets in that case, but you know, that's sort of, it's pointing out these great successes ahead of time that we can then associate to go like kind of go all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, right? These explanatory successes, things going right for people. And in this case, what's going right for people is, uh, let me just be careful, right? Potentially is the stuff that Zachary and I had talked about like a year ago or so now, and as a purely theoretical matter, now is this show, this seems to be showing up in the empirical record of some of, yeah, some of our best successes, epistemic knowledge forming successes. So one of the things that occurred to me in hearing you give this talk is that people tend to think about, I think it's probably just because, you know, riding on the wave of these successes, mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. believe that science is geared toward this <laughs> overarching, comprehensive understanding of everything. Right, right. You know, the toe, the theory of everything. Theory and, on a t-shirt. Yep. Yes. And when people talk about a place like SFI, it is all too often the case that they're imagining a bunch of people sitting in a room, somebody passing pizzas under a door while, you know, everyone's coming up with this right. one ring to rule them all, you know, right, everything right, right. contained within its orbit. And yet everything you've just said on this conversation so far is that yeah. actually, you know, that's um, a red flag. Like if it looks like we're mm -hmm. approaching that, then mm -hmm. here there be dragons. And uh, it's kind of related to, I think, some other work that's come out of SFI. There was a paper mm -hmm. involving a, a bunch of people led by Jaywan Shin, Scale and Information Processing Thresholds in Holocene Social Evolution, which talks about mm -hmm. society mm -hmm. growing and there being the sort of uh, between, uh, it gets to mm -hmm. a certain size and then it requires new information architecture. Mm -hmm. The new information architecture takes root and it affords a larger civilization that then uh, butts up against some new information processing threshold. In your uh, analysis of Filtrans, you see this, like every, I forget what it was, like roughly every century, I think you see a period of several decades where the confidence in a unifying theory is in decline when things start slumping and mm -hmm. people don't know what to make of the world. And mm -hmm. it feels to me anyway, and I'm curious where you stand on this, that we're in one of those right now. And this is where mm -hmm. we can get into the piece that you just wrote for the latest SFI press volume mm -hmm. on COVID-19, where you're looking mm -hmm. back on the challenges to collective sense-making that this has provided. And in fact, uh, Peter Dodds at University of Vermont, who, mm. who just gave a talk at SFI yesterday as of this recording, was talking mm. about the explosive spike in his uh, analysis of Twitter data in the use of the word sense-making over the last year and a half. You know, that it's like, clearly this is on the up because we mm -hmm. have suffered a trauma in our understanding mm. of things. And in this right. piece, you say it very well here. You talk about how it wasn't so much about understanding the symptoms of the disease, pointing them towards a virus, but understanding the virus as the symptom of some other larger systemic issue. And that mm -hmm. a great chunk of the debate that's been going on, and this mm -hmm. is you know where theories like QAnon have rushed in and all this stuff, is about from whence this virus, mm -hmm. right? Like, why do we have this? Is it a zoonotic right. illness? Is it because we are auto-correlating the surface of the planet into one homogeneous human built <laughs> ecosystem? Is right, it, right. you know, is it a, you know, an escaped gain of function thing? 
in which, again, you know, tempting to encompass the unknown in the known and so on. And, and you make the point that in retrospect, COVID-19 pushed our democracies further and further away from the coalitional politics of the 20th century and into a new epistemic realm. Our tribes may no longer be matters of common interest, but ones of common belief. In such a world, politics is won and lost, not only in the material realm, but in that of ideas. So, you know, on the one hand, I guess what I'm coming at here is that it seems to me like there's a case to be made that even while all of us are so concerned about collapse, I say, you know, in the broadest sort of general sense, you know, people mm -hmm. are concerned about collapse, but um, it seems like one of the takeaways from your work is that actually this collapse is a good thing, as traumatic, as difficult as it may be for us individually to find ourselves unmoored from a satisfying, simple explanation. It means we're no longer lying to ourselves about that simplicity. You know, to lean on or to nod to Stuart Firestein's recent SFI lecture, that there's reasons to be optimistic about uncertainty. And just to stack one more thing on this bonfire, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Bob May's classic 1972 piece about will a complex system be stable where he's suggesting that you know mm -hmm. things get to a, a certain point where they sort of endogenously undermine themselves mm -hmm. and here we are and we're at this point where it looks like the cognitive toolkit that was thriving for centuries has reached mm -hmm. another crisis mode and ultimately this is a reason to celebrate as frightening as it may be and i'm curious to hear you reflect on this in light of, you know, things like it was no surprise to me to hear, you know, you're talking a lot about electromagnetism, to hear people last year talking about how, you know, Isaac Newton's theory of optics came out of him being in lockdown after the closure of the university <laughs> system. And he had to go off and just like hang out by himself. And that there's a sense in which this fragmentation leads to, and we've talked about this a lot. I think the first time we brought it up was in episode 22 of this show and then 29 and others I'll link to in the show notes. But, you know, just the sense in which to draw on the book title by Annalie Newitz and how humans respond to mm -hmm. disaster, scatter, adapt, and remember that mm -hmm. we're scattered now, but ultimately the scattering is good, I guess. This isn't a terribly scientific question, I guess. <laughs> but ultimately no, it's, no, it's no, a no, question no, about no. the value yeah. of plurality. I think you see this pretty accurately. I think it goes, you know, it's not just a question of plurality, but as you point out, right, I mean, this was a real shock to our system. I think one of the values that we think about in explanations and, you know, is the extent to which it can account for new data. So it's not a question of prediction. Nobody says, oh, God, nobody predicted COVID. Therefore, you know, my theory of the world didn't predict COVID. So therefore, my theory is wrong. No one says that. Right. We all knew in some ways that this was unpredictable, you know, for the epidemiologists, not so much zoonotic diseases. They've been sitting there for a long time. We've known this. We had a meeting at SFI a few years ago. Yet at the same time, the scale of it, the scope of it, the social responses to it, that I think even the epidemiologists couldn't have predicted and, you know, flip it around. If they had, then they're making a killing on the stock market by shorting the right stocks. Right. And I don't think that's what happened. So, you know, really what's going on is not could my story or your story predict this? But given that it's happening, right, does that make sense in the context of my story? How do I fit this into my model of the world? And that's very different from did my model of the world say this was going to happen? Um, and you see this, I mean, sort of trivially, right? Some people called it the Wuhan flu. I think that was a Trumpian thing, right? And of course, you know, what this is doing, it's trying to make sense of this disease 
is an outcome of you know some zero sum Cold War game between the Western world and China. So that's a very trivial example of this. But I would say none of the stories that we had to hand could really adapt to this. I think, for example, friends of mine in the UK were shocked by the extent to which the government was able to shut down a control society almost instantly uh, in a way that, you know, it was almost like Children of Men, if you've ever seen that film, like the way in which they were able to do that. And, you know, partly by leveraging the, the extreme law-abiding nature of British society. It's a symptom of the success as well as a failure there. And so I think that really caused people to revise, and some people to revise their understanding of what the British nation state was about, what one ought to fear, what one ought not to fear, right? It turns out maybe the big threat to Britain is not immigration, right? But, um, you know, kind of train wreck of people who ought to know. You know, so having smashed apart a lot of stories that people have, and that's just one example, it's kind of a personal example, just a particular friend who had to revise or thought he had to revise his account of what it meant to be British and what Britain was. I think all of our stories got smashed, right? They got smashed also in terms of like, I mean, as another friend of mine said, everyone became 8 million times more themselves during the lockdown, right? So we now we discover it, you know, to a certain extent, we're less surprised by what our friends do than what we ourselves did. So, you know, we were confronted with these shocks, a shock to our understanding of the world, but also a shock to our self-understanding. And that puts us in this very labile position, this very uncertain position where we don't actually, I think, know where our stories are going to solidify when one day they do, right? We don't actually know where we're going to end up, whether, and this is something that comes up in that article that you mentioned that I wrote, you know, whether the political landscape will look anything like it did in 2010. You know, let's rewind it to you know, like 2008 when it seemed like, you know, an FDR world with, you know, interest groups, people who, you know, groups who form coalitions because they have similar needs and desires and then use the democratic process to balance them and to debate. Uh, that seems to be gone, right? What happens next, we don't know, but certainly the ways in which our political allegiances seem to be increasingly centered around how we make sense of the world, right? It's not, oh, I don't want a power line in my backyard. That's the old kind of politics. The new kind of politics is, do you think power lines are a symptom of, you know, the 5G coronavirus conspiracy? Or do you think power lines are a symptom of how capitalism destroys the world? Or do you see power lines as the next great hope and a symptom of the human species ability to adapt to climate change? Right? I mean, like, the object is no longer what matters so much as the story we tell about the object. That may be a symptom of every revolutionary period. That certainly is something that you see, and this is you know, kind of going back a little bit to some work we did in the French Revolution, right, where you see concepts arising in a very lay-by way, combining and recombining in unexpected ways. And then, of course, okay, something happens, the system refreezes. I don't think we know what's going to happen when that system refreezes. Um, you mentioned Martin Schaefer's work on detecting critical transitions, which is a lovely example of somebody, you know, at the Institute or associated with the Institute, trying to, you know, tell a more general story of uh, how these, you know, in his case, like, and how an ecosystem or a psychological system approaches collapse. I think some of the many of the similar things appear here. One symptom that you mentioned of a society approaching some critical point is autocorrelation. Another one is what the physicists would call susceptibility, meaning you push the system in one direction, let's say, right? You give a little kick to it and it starts running in that direction. And right? kick it the other way, starts running in the other direction, right? There's 
the system is actually extraordinarily sensitive to very small perturbative events. Like one blog post can, you know, change the world, right? One, we see this like more than one stuff, like one 4chan green text will change the world. That kind of hypersensitivity suggests to me that, you know, we're in a period of great instability where we don't quite know what's coming out the other side. Fundamentally, Michael, and we have a paper, um, Helena Mita and I are writing a paper on what's called tacit knowledge and the inheritance of traditions over long time scales. You know, I think there's a great deal of wisdom in traditional ideas, traditional practices. Like there's a reason they're around. There's a reason they lasted so long. If you take that to an extreme, this is a terrifying moment because those things are being broken apart. A lot of inherited evolved ways of making sense of the world are just no longer credible and no longer in existence. You know, belief in the nation state, the Treaty of Westphalia. You know, we're entering this period of, it's like one of those Batman movies, right? Where, you know, Bane, like he's creating chaos as this agent of change. We may be into that era. I don't think it's dystopian. I think hopefully it's more comedy than tragedy. Obviously, there's a great deal of tragedy, but we've never been short on that, instability or not. I think there's more comedy to it. But if there's comedy, maybe there's also creativity and opportunity. I'm going out of America. You've asked me to like extend my domain of competence outside of the scientific. And, you know, it's a hot mic. But uh, no, I think, you know, what I maybe what I'm trying to do here, Mike, is less to sort of align myself with is this good or bad and more to just kind of, you know, tell you what I'm seeing here from this kind of universal perspective that the SFI gang tries to make sense of, right? If we look at culture as an evolutionary process, we know evolution is, it turns out, a science, right? We know there are features of evolutionary systems that are shared. We know that there is a speed limit to evolution, right? The error catastrophe limit. We know that we have these incredible bursts, like a Cambrian explosion. We know we have you know, periods of stasis, periods of change. And we know a lot about the statistics of those too, right? So here we are, you know, Peter Turchin, and mention another person who's passed through the SFI orbit. Peter is much more pessimistic than I am. And there's a lot of value to Peter's point of view, not just, you know, because we ought to not be, you know, too American about this, but also because he sees a lot of social phenomena that I don't. We spend a lot of time in, in the lab working purely on ideas on how ideas mutate and change and recombine and are created. Peter also spends a lot of time looking at the social structure. And so, for example, one of his great points is the phenomenon of intra-elite competition, which he says is, again, building to this point where we would expect a violent eruption. So Peter's on the negative side, right? I mean, and I would say, by the way, one of the consequences of something like intra-elite competition is also a great degree of creativity. If everybody is trying to become the next member of the Supreme Court, you're going to see a lot of people experimenting with very weird ideas in order to make it that far. Same thing with most of our elite institutions. We actually, one of the byproducts may in fact be, and it was indeed during the French Revolution, a period of high intra-elite competition, but also a period of great intellectual ferment and change and productivity. So, because you brought up intra-elite competition, this is actually... Okay, yes. <laughs> this is good, this is good. You wrote a commentary a while back with Elizabeth Hobson Yeah. on another paper, a paper, Emergence of Hierarchy and Networked Endorsement Dynamics. You, yeah. you and Liz Hobson commented on this piece called From Equality to Hierarchy about what causes a flat egalitarian society or right. system to stratify and become this few handful of elites up in a tower somewhere pouring oil on mm -hmm. everyone else is <laughs> is a fixation with prestige 
It's a sense in which the environment is stable enough for people to encode a mm-hmm. one-dimensional value, mm-hmm. you know, that this is what we're going for. And like you said, you know, there's all these signs that the tower is crumbling or has started crumbling. Uh, you see, um, you know, Chu and Evans just put out that piece on the larger a field mm-hmm. a scientific discipline gets, the harder it becomes to innovate because there's so much new research coming out all the time. That it gets back to that scale and information processing thing and the error catastrophe thing about how mm-hmm. people uh, no longer know how to navigate the info. So they just look mm-hmm. to where other people are looking. Right. And so in that sort of like herd following activity, you end up with these massive citation biases and all the innovative Mm -hmm. stuff is lost. And it looks kind of like the way that evolutionary innovations are washed out in large populations due to genetic drift or something like that. So yeah, so there's this um, question about strategy and maybe this is the right place to land this. We have a sense that of course we are at sort of different phases, you know, if we look at Mm -hmm. things on different levels, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, civilization as we understand it, is at a point where all of the systems by which we have come to encode these stable environmental features, they're not working. You know, things are changing fast enough that a lot of four-year degrees, by the time you get out of school, most of what you know is irrelevant. And yet... Depends on the major, but yes, yeah. Yes. And yet we need something to hold on to. I guess the question of a tragedy or comedy is a Bayesian one, right? Like, what are you expecting? Like, in order for something to be a joke, you have to expect something and then have your expectations challenged. (laughs) Uh, Whereas it's common among the chronically depressed, Eeyore, a statement such as like, well, I knew it was going to be bad. You know, there's the jouissance, the the satisfaction of that self-destructive habit, the regularity, you know, the certainty there. So, I don't know. I mean, all of this points to the enactment of a kind of meta ritual of comfort in self-undermining. Like we ourselves have to go through a kind of a phase transition epistemically and uh, become much more competent improvisers or something. I don't know. What are your thoughts on what is called of us as individually in this time? And like, how do you imagine, I mean, maybe that is a point A and a point B would be something like, what do you see as the work of science collectively right now, given this knowledge? And, you know, knowing, of course, that this is all filtered through your local Simon Tadeo bias and that there's a jury out there somewhere to disagree. <laughs> well, no, I, I'm the universal prior. I, I you know, <laughs> just give me the information. I'll, I'll give you the optimal answer. There is no universal prior. You know, uh, the way you make me think of is, uh, and, you know, I, since you like concrete details, I can give you a really good concrete detail from the 456 train. So David Hume, way back in the day in the 18th century, one of the questions he has, and, you know, he was farsighted enough to ask a question that we're asking now, which is, why is European science so good? Like, what's up with this? Like, how were we able to do this? And Hume's asking this not the way, you know, let's say Will and Gabe and I are asking it. We're asking like epistemically. He's asking more of this social question. You know, why did science get so good? And he said it was in part because of how prestige and science worked back then. And this brings it to Liz Hobson's paper where we had together on prestige and networks. He said, look, the great thing about Europe is you might be big man on campus in England, but you go to France and no one knows who the hell you are. And you have to like redo the whole show all over again in France. You have to go through the judgment process again, just because you're whatever, you know, William H. 
Dietrich chair of University College London and the, you know, the Moral Sciences Club and you're, uh, whatever, right? you go to Paris and like, well, I guess I say, I don't know what this is, but show me, you know, do you have any results, right? And so the fact that when you crossed a border, prestige vanished. I mean, he's overstating the case, of course, but roughly, he's like, when you cross the border, your prestige signals are no longer legible in this new location. That actually provides a much stronger testing ground for ideas, right? It's funny because, you know, as a Scots, maybe he has a better sense of this crossing the border, you know, past York to go back to England. You can see how reputations are hyper-local in this case. And this for him is a moment of success. And of course, David Hume was writing right at this very chaotic period of the Enlightenment, you know, 17, I forget when he writes histories, uh, 1750s. So, you know, when we talk about, we've talked about chaos in different ways here. Um, we've talked about it as you know, a precursor to violence, but I think also, or at least a co-association with violence, but also as a point where there might be not just many ideas, but also the possibility of testing and retesting these ideas to get better ideas. So that's very exciting, right? And that's the you know, question is, are we closer to that moment now? I want to suggest we are. And so one of the things, obviously, I, you know, I'm a you know, professor, I teach and do research at Carnegie Mellon University in social and decision sciences, right? This is a very established university of great prestige, right? And power and a great department. And, you know, my, I have a really great view from my office. And the Santa Fe Institute, much, much younger than Carnegie Mellon, but at the same time, like, it's a high prestige place now. But I've become very interested in this question of what's beyond the academy, right? Partly because years ago, one of the first bits of research I did outside of physics was in the study of Wikipedia. And Wikipedia between 2005 and 2010, maybe 2000 to 2010, was this extraordinary system. People built a cathedral of knowledge. I was going to say cathedral of learning. That's at the University of Pittsburgh. They built this cathedral you know, entirely with pseudonyms, right? I mean, you know, it's like Woohoo Kitty, you know, user Woohoo Kitty, like, you know, put to, you know, help build a cathedral. And they did it without any centralized organization and without any real external prestige structure. They didn't bootstrap themselves off of the prestige of any institution. In fact, I mean, you know, Jimbo Wales, love this guy, right? Jimmy is, a, you know, he's this visionary um, and Larry Sanger is going to battle this, right? But um, Jimbo was, you know, crazy enough to just switch on open access to the Wikipedia system and let it run. And this was my first introduction to the potential power of new institutions that could emerge very rapidly and do amazing things. You know, without Wikipedia, I mean, Wikipedia is a primary people self-educate on the internet. It's insane how much value is sitting hidden inside Wikipedia that was put together. Wikipedia's changed a great deal of actually paper on Wikipedia, not being so great these days. This got me interested, and this has stuck with me. It's one of these obsessions that stuck with me. Um, you know, what are other systems? And so, you know, for example, I'm teaching a course, uh, teaching a seminar on intelligence through the new Center for Research and Practice. So that's going to kick off in two weeks. Um, and I'm, you know, enormously excited about teaching this class on the philosophy of intelligence, science of intelligence. I'm enormously excited about the class, but I'm also terrified, right? Because the people taking this class, they're not impressed by, you know, Professor Dedeo, right? Like those prestige science, those status science, which undergraduates are quite susceptible to, they're not, right? So if this class is going to be a success, it's going to be a success because it works, right? There is, I think, certainly outside the elite institutions, a great disappointment um, by many young people. You get a great education at Stanford, no question. You get a great education at CMU, no question. Harvard, I don't know, right? Uh, but many young people are saying, look, a lot of these institutions, they feel, justly or not, are bankrupt. Um, they see, you know, enormous amounts of money get siphoned off in the wrong directions. They see, you know, a very high price tag for very low instruction. And so it's not just that people are dropping out. 
many people realize you've got to have a college degree because intra-league competition, right? But they're also incredibly demanding of new knowledge in a way I think we weren't, you know, after I graduated from college, I was like, oh, great, I'm going to do some science, it'll be fun, right? But I wasn't self-educating at the scale that people are doing so now, even coming out of elite institutions. So I was just, I had dinner a few nights ago up in Harlem, where, you know, meet a lot of people who incredibly intellectually curious, and now operating outside of the university system, creating their own institutions, for learning and research, creating their own cultures and let's say nations. So when I cross the border into Harlem, it's like the scientist in Hume's period crossing from Britain to France, right? If I get a hearing there, it's because I've got something worth saying, worth hearing, and not so much because of any kind of CV, right? So this is actually, there's a great deal of excitement here in the ways in which, you know, we have this um, lysistrata, right? This breaking up of strata, this lysis that seems to be happening now, which may actually have very positive things. And I keep going back, and Michael and I, we've, we've, got, we've got well over time here, but I keep going back to, you know, Peter Turchin, right? So Turchin sees the violence, right? And I see the creation. An early paper, just to be clear, an early paper we wrote was about, like, you know, the disappearance of violence from society and how awesome this is. And, like, violence is awful. Turchin and I both see the threat of violence, certainly. We certainly got close to it. We've gotten close to it in the last couple of years, the threat of violence. Whether that actually becomes real, I mean, that's a question that we'll have to wait and see, although, you know, Turchin is going to have a stronger view than I do. What I see at the same time, though, is that chaos, that uncertainty, that breaking apart of elite institutions, or at least the fact that elite institutions are no longer sufficiently large to satisfy the ambitions of young people. That, to me, is producing a very, potentially very healthy uh, intellectual life going forward. And that's, I think, you know, is where I end up in this very optimistic place. That's where I think it makes sense to wrap this with. Great. Okay, Michael, I love you. Um, yeah, this was awesome, Simon. Wonderful to see your family. Ciao, ciao. Thanks. Take care. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.